0: First Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to, to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself And those who hear you. So, Paul is going to give a warning to Timothy that we're to take heed to ourselves, to our ministries, to our service. And in this chapter, Paul will exhort Timothy about what it means to be a good minister in verses one through six, a godly minister in verses seven through 12 a growing minister in verses 13 through 16. So the good servant or the good minister preaches the word and practices the word and through preaching and practicing God's word finds himself or herself growing, maturing, progressing in the word. Warren Wiersbe points out, quote, a growing pastor will produce a growing church. For a man cannot lead others where he has not been himself. How could Timothy or any believer for that matter make progress in the Christian life? He asks that question. And it's a great question. And Paul is going to give us the answer As he answers Timothy, we warn and instruct believers about false teachers, he's already said in verses 1 through 5. We nourish ourselves in the Christian faith and doctrine in verse 6. We avoid foolish speculations in verse 7. We exercise Christ-like character in verse 8. We exercise reason and understand our godly purposes in verse 9. We suffer reproach, we labor, and we command and teach these things in verses 10 and 11. And now Paul tells Timothy, I want you to be an example in verse 12. Devote yourself to public worship in verse 13. Don't neglect your spiritual gift in verse 14. Give yourself entirely to what the scriptures say, what Jesus has said, and then make sure that you tell others in verse 15. Guard yourself and your teaching, he says in verse 16. And so again, we begin with The servant's godly practice in verse 12. He says, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And so remember, Paul has given a series of exhortations. Preach the word, verses 1 through 6. Practice the word, verses 7 through 12. Avoid spiritual fast food. Be known for godliness. And remember, when he uses the term godliness, he's not talking about you walk around with a halo over your head and there's a soft glow coming from your body. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about you cultivate the character of, of Christ. That's exactly what he's saying. And as you cultivate the, char- the character of Christ in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, that means enthusiasm, in faith. We might even say faithfulness and purity. In the ancient cultures, age was honored. Age, back in those days, used to have advantages. Today, a person was talking with me. And they looked at me. And I said, don't let my youthful appearance fool you. I'm somebody's grandpa. In this passage, Paul uses an interesting word for youth. It's the Greek word, neotes. And the word was an interesting word because it literally could mean anyone under 40. And so you have biblically officially crossed the line when you go from 40 to 41. So if you're wondering, okay, well, at what point do you become, you go from youth to mature? So I, I see three steps in the Bible. You go from youth, that's anytime time before 40. Between 40 and 60, that's mature. After 60, Vintage. Do you know how you know when you're old? It's when you look in the mirror and you look exactly like your parents. So how old was Timothy, do you suppose, at the time of this writing? Again, different scholars have suggested different things, but most seem to indicate that he follows Paul very early on and that he might have been in his early 30s. Paul is in in effect basically saying, look, Timothy, let no one despise your youth. We can't be in charge of other people's prejudices. Paul knew that it wasn't your age but your character that makes you fit to lead. Paul wants to make sure that critics aren't going to be given any more ammunition in order to fuel the fires of criticism. And you can imagine for some people if they go, why, that kid is so young, I could have changed his diapers. Well, again, as you know, that it isn't the age of the person, but again, the content of their character. And so the servant leader is to be an example And we know what example means. Both in the Bible and in our very real world, it means a pattern or a model. For those of you who sew or create clothes, you know you have a template and you cut out the cloth. It serves as a model or as a template. And that's exactly what Paul means when he uses this term. It is true that nobody's perfect. And it's it's interesting because for many of us, we might be a little bit afraid when we hear Paul writing to Timothy, basically saying, I need you to be an example. And you go, nobody's perfect. And I get that. In high school, my football coach would say, Teresa, you're a perfect example of what not to do. Well, if you're going to be an example, An example, you know, you could be a good example or you can be a bad example. But I don't think that this is what Paul has in mind. He's not trying to frighten you into not being an example or to make excuses for conduct. And so for Paul, when he uses the term that you're to be an example to the believer's note. He says in word, in conduct, and here conduct means more than just your immediate behavior. He's making a reference, I think, not just to the specifics of your life, but the overall conduct and character of your life. And so Paul is going to list five things quickly, and we're going to look at them just very quickly. He says, number one, be an example in speech. And then number two, he says, be an example in personal conduct. And then number three, be an example in love. And then number four, be an example in faith. And then he says, be an example in purity. And so what role does example play in discipleship? It plays a very heavy role according to the New Testament. You'll remember Jesus told his disciples in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, I want you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So Jesus invites right away a comparison. He says, guess what? I invite you to take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And again, we don't have to look far to find other examples. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, join with others in following my example. Elsewhere, he'll say, follow me as I follow Christ. And so again, that's the example. And so Paul clearly includes speech, conduct, love, faith, enthusiasm, Perseverance, maturity. In First Thessalonians chapter one, verses six and seven, Paul says, "You became imitators of us and of the Lord." It's interesting when he uses that word "imitator." It's a Greek word that that has a cognate in our own language. It's mimic. Sometimes we get a little confused because you know, mimic means to copy and mock means to copy in a way that is unflattering. (laughs) And that's fairly easy to do. But this is not what he has in mind. He's not talking about mocking in an unflattering way. And so when Paul says, you became imitators of us and you became model for the believers and what model is that? in that context he was actually talking about patience and suffering and difficulty even the apostle peter would add in first peter chapter 5 verse 3 not lording it over those who are entrusted to you but being examples to the flock and so peter taught the disciples and the servants, to lead by example. And this becomes so very, very important because, again, the leader doesn't compel people in the sense of, in an authoritarian way, manipulating people, but rather through love and example. And that's a big difference in leadership. It isn't to just simply say, do what I do. I had a PE coach who said, do what I say and do what I do. And he says, I'm never going to ask you to do anything that I myself am not prepared to do. And he lived it out. And so let's take a quick look at at our list. Speech, he says. Be an example in the way that you speak. Paul points out to Timothy that our words matter. Our speech can either complicate communication or facilitate communication. So what does the servant of Jesus do? Paul told Timothy to exercise gentle authority. Avoid useless arguments in conversation. Remember what he's already said in verse 11. These things command and teach. In chapter 5, verse 1, he'll say, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. He's once again reminding them that the way that you conduct yourself, the way that you speak really does matter. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. He'll say, exercise gentle authority, avoid useless or argumentative conversation. And so he goes from speech to conduct. And again, this is a reference to our lifestyle. It can refer, again, to general behavior, specific behavior. But here becomes the bottom line. When asked the question, well, how am I supposed to conduct myself? The example ultimately becomes Jesus. You know, the, the silly bracelet that so many people wore early on, the WWJD. And I've already told you what my dad goes, WWJD, who wants Jack Daniels? No, no, dad. It's what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And that becomes sort of the way of thinking about how I am to conduct myself in any given situation. You know, I don't need to tell you what your mother or your grandmother quite possibly already told you. As a matter of fact, I'll say it and you can finish it. Actions speak. You all know that. Actions speak louder than words. It isn't just simply what you say, but what you do. And so Paul says, Timothy, your speech matters, your conduct matters. Clearly, action does speak louder than words. And what we do will do one of two things. It will reflect the heart and the character of Jesus, or it won't. It really is that simple. But you already know something, don't you? It becomes difficult to tell people the truth when for whatever reason we're not living the truth in our own lives. There's nothing more difficult For the gospel than when we fail to live the truth in our lives. So he talks about speech. He talks about conduct. And and I think even the order matters. Because then he begins to talk about love. Because I want to remind you of something. Imagine you say the right thing, speech. You do the right thing, conduct. But then you have less than noble motives. I wish it were true that everything that we say and do is motivated by love, but in moments of honesty, we have to come to grips with maybe that's not true. Maybe we sometimes do stuff and we're not motivated by love. We're motivated by selfishness. Again, we have to be clear what Paul means when he's using this term love. And for those of you who are Bible students, you're very much already aware of what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, that great big love chapter. And if we were going to just literally boil it down to its basic, seminal, fundamental essence... It means a willingness to do what's right towards that other person. That's what love is. And that's what he means by love. Love means doing what's right towards the object of your love. Love isn't legalism and love isn't license. Augustine wrote, quote, where there is love, there's a trinity, a lover, a beloved, and a spring. The spring that he's talking about is this over flowing of affection between that which is loved and loving. Someone once said, quote, love to God purifies and ennobles every taste and desire, intensifies every affection, brightens every worthy pleasure, unquote. Martin Luther suggested to love God is to hate oneself and to know nothing apart from God. So again, Paul is building on the servant's growth. It isn't just simply having the right thing to say. And it isn't even simply doing the right thing at any given time. It's saying what's right and doing what's right, motivated by love. And some of you might be thinking, wow, this is a a lot. This is a fairly huge expectation. But what if I told you That this is normal Christianity. This isn't extraordinary Christianity. This is normal Christianity. And so he builds speech, conduct, love, faith. And what can we say here about faith in the context of speech, behavior, and love? I'm going to suggest to you that here faith almost certainly means a couple of things. I'm going to suggest to you that it means everything that God has revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not talking about Catholic faith or Protestant faith or, or even just a set of, of doctrinal distinctives. I think what he means here by faith is everything, everything that God has revealed to us in the person of Jesus and that fills our heart with hope. In other words, it is what Jesus has done in our life that fills our heart with hope. Now think about what he's saying. Speech that leads to conduct, motivated by love. And speech and conduct and love that's motivated gives you an unprecedented opportunity to share your faith. Guess what? At that point, you've earned the right to talk about your faith. Because what you say and what you do, motivated by love, it's hard. It's very difficult for a person who sees your life, listens to your speech, watches your life, and knows your heart, when all of a sudden you say to them, Can I share something with you about what God has shown me? Can I talk with you a little bit about what it means to know God? Or can I talk with you a little bit about what the Bible has to say? about a particular issue. And then all of a sudden, there's an invitation that becomes welcome because you realize that what this person says and what this person does and the thing that is motivating what this person says and does, they all fit together. And all of a sudden, you want to hear what they have to say. And so then he talks about purity. And I'll be honest with you that the world that Paul lived in That this word was just as uncommon in his generation as it is in our generation. Paul is using the word in the sense of chastity and virtue. In the ancient world as well as the modern world, it was a word that most people would distance themselves from. It was a word that communicated honesty and integrity and consistency, It may well be that Paul also, I think, has in mind when he uses this term as a sense of authenticity or transparency, but here purity clearly means minimum moral purity, a cleanness, an honesty. I think it means even more. I think it means honesty and purity but I also think that the word itself invites a permission to walk away from greed or lust or worldliness or immorality. This is a word that gives you as a Christian permission to say, that's not for me. That, I don't want that to be a part of my life. I don't want this to be a part of my heart. Our hearts and our lives should reflect the presence of Jesus. And you'll remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, in his very famous Sermon on the Mount, remember Jesus' words, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see Why do you suppose that is? Why do you suppose that the pure in heart see God? It's because they can't see anything else. Some of you are old enough to remember the old Ivory commercials that would come on the TV, and it would say, "Ivory soap is ninety-nine point nine nine percent soap. There's no perfume. There's no additives. It's soap. It's soap." The pure heart is exactly that. There's no additives. There's no. There's nothing else that's added, and so the pure in heart see God. Because there's nothing left for them to look at. And so Paul moves to this issue that these things are to mark, and and note this, our public lives and our private lives. Paul is calling on him, Timothy, as a pastor, that there's no differentiation between who he is in public and who he is in private. And so Paul, again, talks about the servant's godly progress in verses 13 through 16. Look what it says. In verse 13, he says, Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. When Paul says, till I come, we think we know what that means. It, Paul's plan was to return to Ephesus. And for those of you who may have forgotten in chapter 3, remember in verses 14 and 15, it says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. When he's writing this wor- these words, we think that he's in Achaia or, or Macedonia. He's in the northern part of, of Greece. And we absolutely don't know if he ever made it back. We don't know, even though he says, okay, this is my plan. My plan is to eventually make it back to Ephesus. But until I get there, give attention to reading exhortation and doctrine. And I think I've already told you, remember, this book of 1 Timothy, he is the pastor at Calvary Chapel in, in Ephesus. And at that time, the three largest cities in the Mediterranean would have been Rome, Alexandria, and Ephesus. His plan is to return. And so when Paul says, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And by the way, the word doctrine, oddly enough, again, in our popular culture and society, and even in the Christian culture and society, seems to have fallen out of favor. People will say, you know, I'm not interested in doctrine. But guess what? Doctrine is something that was very important to Paul and very important to Timothy. This word actually means more than just a set of rules and regulations. Paul is urging Timothy to perform these three basic duties. Public reading of the scripture exhorting the people to live their lives in light of God's word and then teaching them what God's word means. I hope, I hope, I hope that you're left with the impression, wow, it seems to me that Paul is reminding Timothy that somehow the word of God, the word of God, the teaching of the word and then understanding the word and then doing the word forms the basis of what it means to be the pastor or the leader. And so you might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm not a pastor or I'm not a leader. Well, if you are a pastor or a leader, this has everything to do with you. And if you're not a pastor and a leader, it should automat- there should be something in your mind that says, okay, so this is what a healthy church looks like. This is what a healthy church does. A healthy church has healthy worship. A healthy church gives healthy attention to the, the, the teaching, the substance of what the Bible has to say. A healthy church then encourages people to actually do what the Bible says. So the pastor's focus is on the word of God. And here the reading, I suspect, is the reading of the Old Testament scriptures. But I don't think it's limited to that. So when he says Give, pay attention to reading, in what sense? I think it means not simply private reading of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I think it is the public reading of the scripture to the congregation, The Gospels and the other epistles would have made their way to local congregations and would have been read. By the way, when Paul is writing these words to Timothy as he finds himself in Ephesus, guess what? We have every reason to believe that Matthew, Mark, Luke, with the possible exception of John, were already written. We know that the book of James was already written. We know that the book of 1 and 2 Thessalonians were already written. So when he's talking about give attention to the reading, is he talking about the Old Testament? I think so. Is he also talking about the New Testament documents? I'm going to suggest to you that probably it does. Timothy was to regularly read the scriptures out loud to the congregation. Why do you suppose that is? Does it make sense to you that half of the people couldn't read There was literacy among many, but there was illiteracy also. And so in the ancient world, if people couldn't read, they needed the the scripture to be read. And by the way, how many people in the ancient world do you think had a King James Bible? That would be zero, How many people do you think could afford an entire scroll of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel? How many of them had their own Torah that they could walk around with? I'm going to suggest to you that to own something as precious as a Torah would have put you in a category all by yourself. So Paul's letters were written in such a way that they could be read out loud. But Paul insists that once the the, the writings were read out loud, that they were to be explained and then applied to your life. Doesn't this sound exactly what a Bible church should do? We read it. We say what it says. And then we ask, what does this mean for us? So every pastor is a Bible student. And every church is supposed to be a Bible church. We're to teach Christian doctrine and to preach. That's the exhortation. Give attention to reading. To exhortation. And by the way, here, the word is the same word that's elsewhere translated, preaching. Some people will say... I like to be taught, but I don't like to be preached at. Well, let me help you think it through. Teaching is imparting information. Preaching is urging you to believe it and apply it to your life. So you might be asking, well, are you teaching or are you preaching? When I'm telling you what it says, I'm teaching. When I'm urging you to do what it says... I'm preaching. And so, we warn. We advise. That's what exhortation means. It means to warn and urge people to apply the word of God to their daily lives. If you're a pastor, that's your job. What if I'm not a pastor? then it should also be this information that gives you a way of thinking about a healthy church, healthy leadership. Does the church teach the Bible? Does the pastor or the leaders or the ruling elders, do do their lives reflect Christ's character? How does the church or the minister act in regard to teaching and preaching God's word? Are there various spiritual gifts evident in the congregation? What are the pastor's gifts? What are your gifts? How do you use those gifts? What is the evidence that demonstrates the gifts either of the pastor or of yourself does the church practice honest self-examination verse 16 does the church and the pastor demonstrate a genuine concern for the salvation of others in verse 16 all of these things become hints to you hey if this is a really a healthy church where does what role does worship play what role does bible study play what what role does evangelism play And so in verse 14, Paul says, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So Paul exhorts Timothy not to amelo, neglect his spiritual gift. Here neglect means forsake, let it go by, let it go stagnant. Did someone prophesy over Timothy and impart some gift that was revealed by a prophetic word? I'm going to suggest to you that the answer in part seems to lie in Paul's statement. He says, do not neglect the gift that is in you. The the implication being, you have a gift, which was given to you by prophecy. In what sense? Did someone come up to you and just simply go, I think God's given you a gift of exhortation or teaching or whatever or whatever. I'm going to suggest to you that it might be something different. Because when Paul adds the statement with the laying on of the hands of the eldership, the word eldership here is the very familiar word presbyterion. For those of you who grew up in a Presbyterian church or if you know the word Presbyteros, it's a word that's elsewhere used in Luke chapter twenty-two, verse sixty-six, and in Acts chapter twenty-two, verse five. It was a place where the ruling elders of the Jewish Sanhedrin would gather. So it was a formal sort of a gathering of government officials who had, who were tasked with, with the, uh, with a role of serving as as the governors or or the leaders. And so, in this reference, I think it probably means the act whereby the elders in the church laid hands on Timothy and commissioned him for service. It's what you and I would call ordination. In other words, Timothy is this young man. He's a bright young man, a follower of, of Paul. He is a companion. He's learning the ministry ropes. He's learning what it means to love people and minister to them and serve them. And it's evident that God has given him a gift and that he's Exercising that gift. And then the congregation is confirming the reality of those gifts in his life. That's what I think that it means. And so you might be thinking, okay, what's my gift? Well, let's see. Exercise something. What is it that you love? What is it that you're passionate about? What do you care about? What is it that God seems to have entrusted to you? Because guess what? When you start exercising it, then the rest of the congregation will say something like, I couldn't help but noticing that you have the gift of hospitality because you welcome people into your home. For some reason, your home, it becomes the most important. Not only do you love and care about your own home, but you want your home to be a sanctuary for other people. Or you might have a gift of encouragement because no matter how bad the circumstances, no matter how difficult pain and problem becomes you're looking for ways to bring grace and mercy and comfort and support into another person's life. Maybe God has given you a gift of teaching. Maybe God has given you a gift of discernment. Maybe God has given you any and all of these kinds of gifts. But we have a saying again. Use it or... Lose it. Use it or lose it. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of hands of the eldership. In other words, he exercised some sort of gift. The rest of the congregation confirmed it, that it was a real reality. And I'm going to suggest it's even a physical gesture of empowerment. Sometimes God would use this time to reveal to leaders the reality of other kinds of things in your life. We just had a baptism, and in our baptism, it's not unusual for me for some person to come up to be baptized, and I'll say, you know what? This isn't just some sort of religious ritual that's taking place. We're not just dunking you in the water and hoping that you're going to come out. I'm going to suggest to you that this is an act of submission and obedience as you identify with Jesus, and out of submission and obedience as you identify with Jesus, God shows up, and by His Holy Spirit, He wants to reveal To you, the very wonderful, the very precious gifts that he's given to you. Paul may have had some concern that Timothy might be tempted to ignore the gift or neglect the gift. You know what's interesting about the text itself? Paul doesn't tell us the gift, he doesn't identify Timothy's gift in the text, he doesn't list it specifically. He just says, don't neglect that gift. I'm going to suggest to you that the gift, in part, almost certainly has something to do with teaching and shepherding and comforting. I think we could include on our list of example that Timothy was to be the example of a spirit-led leader. In Romans chapter 8 verse 14 Paul will write elsewhere for as many as are led by the spirit of God they are the sons of God. So the people who are led by the spirit of God you can't be led by the spirit of God unless the spirit of God is living inside of you and the spirit of God can't be living inside of you unless you've already made that commitment to submit your life to Jesus. So what is your spiritual gift? It's okay for you to ask that question. What is your spiritual gift? What is the unique and specific area of gifting that God has entrusted to you? And how is it being used in the church? And how is it being used in Christ's service? Have you neglected your gift? Because one of two things really is happening. You're neglecting your gift or you're cultivating your gift. And so it's always my job to say, which is it? What are you doing? How are you doing it? Why not use them? Has apathy or neglect or personal disobedience caused you to shrink, shrivel, retreat from what it is that God wants you to do? And by the way, If you're really serious about this, you can... There's a spiritual gifts inventory that we've posted on our website. You can go to my teaching on Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 8. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 or 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where we do an exhaustive analysis of the identification of gifts and how you can begin to ask and answer the question, well, what are my gifts? And in verse 15... Paul again tells Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul says to Timothy, meditate on these things. The word meditate, by the way, has both an Old Testament connotation and a New Testament connotation in its context. In the Old Testament connotation, the psalmist would use this word to describe something like like. Cows chewing cud, where you take grass and you chew it, and you guys know that cows have several stomachs, and they would chew, 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 swallow, and then they upchuck. That's how they politely say it in the South. They upchuck, and then they chew, 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 and then they swallow it again, and then they upchuck, and then they chew, 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 and swallow it again. There's a sense in which that's true. But I suspect that here, Paul means it in a more precise way, to care, to take care, to attend. The expression, give yourself entirely to them, literally means, in the original language, be in these things. In our own culture and society, people, I don't know, I'm old, so I'm hopelessly beyond ever being hip ever again. But people would say stuff like, what are you into? What are you into? Golf, football, what is it that you're into? Bikes, motorcycle riding, what are you into? Here, this is, I think, exactly what this means. He's basically making the suggestion, not the suggestion, the order. Be in these things. The word progress means to cut forward, to blaze the way, to make a pioneer advance. Meditate, take care on these things. What things? Everything that we've just read. What things? Minimum, everything in chapter 1, everything in chapter 2, everything in chapter 3. But if we even just simply take the context... And we say, it has to at least mean be an example to the believers in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. These things, what things? What are you into? I am into right behavior, right speech, right heart in the spirit. In faith, in purity. Or another way of thinking about the word progress to cut, to blaze, to pioneer, to advance. It's the ancient version of the Star Trek to boldly go where no one has gone before. It means to blaze a trail. I think another way of maybe asking the question would be this. What are you into? A less gentle way would be to say, what dominates your life? What preoccupies your thought? What takes up most of your time? And so, Paul says about dedication, look what it says in verse 16 take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. So, Timothy is warned take heed. In what sense? The word take heed is an interesting Greek word, it means keep a strict eye, pay close attention. Again, in our culture and in society, when we go like this, I'm watching you. I've got my eye on you. That's what he's saying. Keep your eye specifically on the task at hand. Examine yourself. Take heed. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. And and that's important, too. Again, it isn't just simply about make sure your doctrine is correct. It is make sure you're correct. And he says, continue in them. Stick with it. Stay with it. See it through to the end. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, But I keep my body under control. I bring it under subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself be a castaway. Jude 21, keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Keep yourself. Keep yourself. In what sense? In the constant place where you have access to the love of the Lord. So the Bible says love them and then keep yourself in the place where you can love them and evaluate your progress continue in them examine evaluate the doctrine that's essential Christianity pay close attention to your private life and to your public ministry think about what Paul is saying to Timothy as a pastor he's saying your private life and your public life should be in distinguishable from one another. Wouldn't you love to say that to every TV evangelist? And there's something else here. He says, make sure you're above reproach, no basis of accusation. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them for in doing this, you'll save both yourself and those who hear you. Is Paul teaching salvation apart from grace and apart from faith and apart from Christ? No, that's not the context. Here, salvation means perseverance. When he says, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Let let me be blunt. If you're not a hypocrite, will that reduce a lot of grief in your life? Will it save you from a lot of unnecessary headache and heartache? I think that this, that's what it means. So the salvation here isn't being saved from sin, which is by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves, but rather it's deliverance that comes from the accusations and dangers that plague believers in the very real world in which we live. So here, save both yourself and those who hear you means make progress. Keep growing. And so again, instead of being frustrated... By a lack of growth, be encouraged that you're making progress, that that your speech is improving, that your conduct is improving, that the motivations in your heart are improving. Paul is, in effect, saying, I want you to think about what you're reading and his exhortation and warning to young Timothy centers around the church and the word of God. And so, what he's basically saying is the way to build the church and equip the saints is to focus on the Bible, preach it, teach it, practice it. So, let's probe a little bit deeper and look just a little bit harder. Because at this point, this is where you should ask yourself a bunch of questions. When he says, keep doing this, continue in it, make progress, it's okay for you to ask yourself this question Am I making progress? Am I experiencing setbacks? Am I going forward? Am I going backwards? What significant spiritual lessons am I learning right now? What relationships have I begun? What what things am I strengthening in my life? What special projects am I working on or have I completed? In what areas of personal character have I experienced setbacks? In what areas of personal growth and maturity do I need work? How are you exercising your spiritual gifts You know, one of the things that we're doing here at Calvary South Denver is we're going to launch CSD groups. And CSD groups are going to provide an outlet so that we can do the things that the Bible asks us to do. Because guess what? Spiritual gifts are rarely exercised in solitude. There's very few things that you can do all by yourself. Are there some things? I'm going to concede that there are some things, like prayer, like study, like preparation. But the very point of spiritual gifts seems to be that the Holy Spirit gives them to you so that you can give them to each other. So, for the person who says, I don't need to go to church. Golf course is my, my sanctuary. Of course it is. Of course it is. It makes perfect sense to me. Because spiritually gifted people have spiritual gifts that come from God by the Holy Spirit for the purposes of edifying the saints and for doing all of the one anothering that's talked about in the Bible. We are, for the most part, given spiritual gifts to fulfill spiritual obligations to love one another, to minister to one another, to pray for one another, to support one another, to encourage one another, or what we might call one anothering. Now, I know that's not a real word, but it is a biblical concept. So, what's the key to personal growth? If you read this passage and you don't come away with at least the answer, the word of God, the key to personal growth is the word of God. It's knowing it and loving it and believing it and then living as if it's true. So we can think of two ways, a personal growth and a pastoral growth. And by the way, I think that there's something else that we might just quickly glean. How can the pastor help you grow? How can the pastor help you grow? But there's one other thing. One that you might not think of. How can you help the pastor grow? Every good pastor wants to be available in time of need. But no pastor can afford to waste time. So, what constitutes a waste of time and productive time? I wish I had a good answer for that, but I don't. I've been doing this for a very, very long time. Is it a waste of time? What constitutes a waste of time? It's been my experience that when people call me and they say, I need your help. I need you to pray with me or I need you to be with me or my mother is is in the hospital and she's getting ready to die. My father is in the hospital. He's getting ready to die. This is happening and that's happening. How do I know what constitutes a good use of time and what constitutes a waste of time? I don't know the answer, but I would encourage you to just think about this. Be sensitive to the pastor's time. Pray for your pastor's. But I'll tell you the one thing that your pastor wants more than anything else. Pay attention to when he preaches. When the pastor says, I need you to see what it is that you're reading and then actually do what it says. Few things are more discouraging for the pastor than when the saints fail to apply themselves to follow the message from the word of God help provide the means to build the work of the church. Help provide the means of recognizing the gifts and then cultivating those gifts and then allowing a venue for those gifts to be exercised. Many a godly pastor can't accomplish what God wants done in the church because people in the church refuse to do what God has called them to do. So again, Warren Wearsby says, this means faithful stewardship, bringing tithes and offerings to the Lord. Many a godly pastor can't accomplish what God wants done because the church is in debt or has a poor financial history. Also, if the church doesn't pay the pastor a living wage, it adds to his burdens. It can hinder the work. The good news is, guess what? That's not a description of our church. We pay our debts, and we've been financially um, solvent. And guess what? I don't need anything. I am so okay. But that's not true of everyone in every case. The pastor's concern... Is for the flock. But the pastor can't neglect his own soul. So what does the Lord require of his servants? The character standards may appear really high. They may appear really difficult. But Paul gives Timothy and us hope. And you know what the real hope is? It's in that one little word. It's in that one word that we find in our text. Progress. Progress. Are you making progress? Because you might be saying, you know what? I'm not doing everything I should be doing. Praise God. I'm not praising God that you're not doing everything you're you're supposed to, but are you making progress? Have, Have you gone from a little to a little bit more in the way you speak, in the way you live, in what's going on inside of your heart? In Paul's use of the term progress or persevere, he's basically saying this, keep growing, keep maturing. Timothy's progress was never simply intended to benefit Timothy, but to benefit everyone in Timothy's life. And this becomes one of the exciting, exciting things. You see the progress that Jesus is making in your life. It it isn't just simply for you. It's for the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you. We're to live our lives in such a way that we benefit those who are around us. So Timothy's example would serve as a source of salvation in what sense? I'm going to suggest to you for those who aren't saved and serve as an example of perseverance for those who are tripped up, falling behind. Timothy was to pay attention to his private life, his public life, but clearly it's in order to help others. And so the attention that you pay to what's going on inside of you and around you isn't just simply for you, Because guess what? Christian living was never, ever intended to be done all by yourself. And so, there's a whole lot more that we could talk about. But we're going to pause right now in our study of 1 Timothy. And we're going to have communion here in just a moment. And obviously, we were doing things a little bit differently. Normally, we would have elements and we would pass them out but I am going to pray. I'm going to have Carolyn come out and she's going to sing a song and then we're going to have communion. All I ask that you do is that you just uh, um, not have the elements until we all have an opportunity to uh, partake together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do commit this time to you. Lord, as we go through this study, as we hear Timothy's task and Paul's exhortation. Lord, as we look not just simply at the text as an interesting uh, information that's given on what it means to be an appropriate pastor, Lord, we pray that we would begin to ask and answer the question, what does this mean for me? How is this going to affect my life? my service, the way that I speak, the way that I live my life? What is it that's motivating me to do whatever it is that God has called me to do? How can I discover what it is that God has called me to do? And then how can I be given opportunity to express that gift in a way that's going to honor you and help people and build the saints and edify the body. And Heavenly Father, again, we're reminded, we're reminded of Jesus, our Lord. He's the head. We're the body. And Lord, we know that sacrifice and suffering was a part of the plan that was going to result in redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And Heavenly Father, I pray just for a brief moment for that person who these things might seem very foreign and very strange. But Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would remind them of your love, of Jesus's sacrifice, of his willingness to forgive and reconcile us to yourself. And so Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts as we, as we think about that sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that we could honor you as we reflect and meditate on the sacrifice of Jesus. Amen.